0: As educators, like that's what that's what we do, right, is meeting the needs of, our, of students and of individual learners. Um, but when you don't know what those are, it's just kind of like hitting a target, trying to hit a target that you can't really see.
1: Welcome to the Relational Parenting Podcast. I'm Jennifer Hayes, a parent coach and 20 year child care veteran. Each week, I sit down with my own father, Rick Hayes, and discuss the complicated issues that parents face today, as well as some of the oldest questions in the book. From the latest research and the framework of my relational parenting method, we offer thought-provoking solutions to your deepest parenting struggles. Added bonuses include intergenerational wounding discussions and guest childcare experts. We will also start taking your parenting questions in episode five, so be sure to comment with your biggest questions or email me directly at jenny at jennyb.co. Let's get started. Caroline LaPierre is a psychologist who has extensive experience working in the field of education and psychology. She works with families and individuals who want to grow to their next level. When families aren't satisfied with the answers they get from schools, Caroline helps them determine next steps that will lead to happy and positive changes. Caroline also believes change can be easy. Using clinical hypnotherapy to help calm and soothe the nervous system helps adult clients get unstuck and achieve goals. She leads online ADHD groups for women and members of the LGBTQIA community. Online courses are coming soon, and you can find all her services and information at www.yycpsych.com. All right, so we are, this is episode two of our education series, and let's see, two of five, and we are here with Caroline LaPierre, and she is a registered psychologist, And um, she works with children and families um, inside the education system. She owns a psychology practice that is uh, private, and uh, families come to her to ask for. Diagnoses and help um, advocating for their kids' uh needs in the education system. And so she is coming to us from Canada and oh, she's here to cool. talk about and give you guys tips for helping your kids through the education system because we all know that mm-hmm. can be it's it's a team effort. Um, and if mm-hmm. any part of that team is pushing back and not listening to you as parents, that can be extremely difficult. So,
2: yeah, that's um, a bad scene. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So welcome, Caroline. Hi, Why don't thank you, you for having me. <laughs> you're welcome. Um, let's see, how did you get started working with kids?
0: Yeah. So I have been working with kids pretty much since I was 18 years old. Going through my first degree and got a job um, basically as a teaching assistant. Um, actually, where I live, um, it was the second language um, teaching assistant position, so working with French and English. Um, and then I did that kind of throughout my university and um, got a couple different degrees, started a couple different degrees, stopped those, and then decided to pursue education. And then I worked as a teacher for six years. I taught middle school, grades five to nine pretty much every subject under the sun. Um, And then, you know, that is where it really started um, jumping out to me, like the different struggles of um, just families and students trying to kind of navigate life, trying to navigate school, um, and the different struggles that come up, right? Um, And when you're teaching middle school, like classes are so big. I had uh, like usually 180 kids walking through my door every day. So trying to, yeah. So, which is bananas. Right. Um, and when you're trying to like help these students and figure out what's the best for them, it just like time is so limited that that becomes really difficult. So I knew that I didn't want to be a teacher like going forward. Um, and then that just kind of transitioned naturally to what I do now, which is educational psychology. And then that just allows me to work one-on-one with kids and with families to support them so that hopefully they can go forward and then get that support from the teachers that they need.
1: Awesome. What were, so grades five through nine, that's, that's a hard group.
2: <laughs> yeah, middle, like, I was oh, on God. school board. Yeah. For a while. Middle school. Yeah. Nobody's got anything on teaching middle schoolers.
1: <laughs> those, were even, those were even my least favorite years as a kid.
0: Oh, yeah. I was
2: like, ooh.
1: Anyway. They need help. Hormones what
2: we're going some, crazy. And, uh.
1: Yeah. So so 180 kids. I came, I came from a very tiny school system. I graduated with 54 kids in my class. So okay. the thought of 180 students coming through one classroom in a day is insane to me. How did you juggle 180 different unique needs and learning styles and like all of the things that are happening at that time of life
0: um well and that's the tricky part is with some students it's really obvious and some students are really good at advocating for their needs and saying like hey, this is what I need, this is what I'm used to, this is what's provided to me, Um, usually because of the paperwork and all of that. Um, But then a lot of students, um, you know, really struggle with advocating for themselves, which is something that a lot of adults struggle with, right? Advocating for themselves. Um, And so when they don't, um, as a teacher, it's hard to have that time to go, like, digging through files and things like that. So that's where it becomes really tricky, Um, And then I think that's where the parent part of it becomes so critical um, is supporting your child through their learning and through the school system is that it kind of falls on the parents to then be that squeaky wheel for their child Mm -hmm. to help bring that to the teacher's attention.
2: Sounds like that's a skill that would be really valuable to teach our kids when we're thinking about raising kids and parenting them making sure they know how to go into a situation from as young an age as possible and say, Hey, that's, you're going too fast. Can you repeat that? Or, you know, to advocate for themselves and get what they need. That sounds super valuable.
0: A hundred percent. And like, there's this example that's often given, like when children have say a nut allergy, for example, they will like from the age of five be like, Hey, I'm allergic to nuts. Don't bring those around me. I can't be with Mm -hmm. them. Like, don't feed that to me, right? But when it comes yeah. to things like learning and attention, ADHD, it's just totally, like, whether it be stigma or labels or what mm-hmm. have you, it's totally different, right? Kids aren't comfortable being like, hey, I struggle with reading. Here's what needs to happen for me. Yeah. And it's like huh. a part of that yeah. mind shift, right?
1: Well, and giving kids that language, because it's very like when it's life or death, like something like a peanut allergy can be life or death. The parents starting when they're like three years old or whenever they get them allergy tested, like I know three-year-olds who've been like, no peanuts, no peanuts, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and like they, yeah, know. the parents drill it into them, like do yeah. not eat peanuts. Like yeah. what if we started our three and four and five-year-olds on these are your needs. And this is how you talk about them. So like, whether that's your six year old, you know, maybe the teacher notices like they're not picking up, uh, reading as quickly as the other kids. That's fine. Kids develop at different, uh, different times. And so teaching your child then at six years old, you know, make sure you let your teacher know if they're going too fast or if this is happening and make it normal instead of, not talking about it and like trying to not make your kid feel bad or give them like some kind of stigma about a stigma about themselves. Like if you do it in the right way and you normalize it for them, instead of feeling bad about it, they'll be able to stand up and just ask for their needs to be met.
2: Yeah. yeah. Exactly. That sounds so valuable.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Cause as educators, like that's what, that's what we do, right? Is meeting the needs of, our, of students and of individual learners. Um, but when you don't know what those are, it's just kind of like hitting a target, trying to hit a target that you can't really see.
2: Well, and some of it's yeah. time consuming. It's not, you know, there's things you can't fix. You're, you have to cope with because your primary job is, hey, I have to teach something mm-hmm. to 180 kids. I can't <laughs> spend all day on one kid. Yeah. And uh, so that, yeah. So there's just needs that don't, that teachers can't meet uh, and just need to know how to how to work with best.
0: Mm hmm. hmm. Wow. For sure. Yeah. So parents go in and say, hey, this is what the learning needs are. Um, you know, this is what's been done in the past. This is what's really successful. Um, you know, how can I support you in supporting my child when they're in your care all day? Right. Um, yeah goes a long way like like of course with the school system it's a lot more complex than that but in a nutshell that is like the best jumping off point I think so
1: tell me more Caroline about how you help families now uh outside of the school system how do you help families uh navigate the education system with their kids
0: Mm -hmm. yeah so when families come to me um It can be kind of one of two things. So as an educational psychologist, I do do psychoeducational assessments, um, and I do provide diagnoses and then accommodations and recommendations, steps to take going forward. So that does provide then the official paperwork that families can go back to the school with, and that's what allows the school to put like an IEP, an individualized educational Mm -hmm. plan, and get funding and things like that. So that is one way, and that's kind of the official way, right, if you will, to get the paperwork in place, like I said. Um, But then the other way is sometimes parents are hesitant to go through the psychoeducational process. Um, Mm. Some don't want labels. uh, Mm. Some, uh, you know, just want to, like, kind of try things on their own. Before kind of going that route. So then we just go through strategies, recommendations, things to think about, things to try. Um, we look at different resources together uh, and then get them started that way. So
1: that's so when you say they want to try something else, they want to try something besides diagnoses and IEP in the school, and they just want to try. Um, Things at home, strategies, uh, tools—you know, like setting up an environment for their kids.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, um, some parents will say, you know, we'll we'll try tutoring at home, whether that be parents or another tutor, like you just said, Jenny, right? Like setting up the environment for success, um, building habits. Um, you know, sometimes small habits, sometimes changing big habits, and then seeing what kind of gains can be made from that, and how they can, as a family, try to apply that to the school setting without actually involving the school. Hmm. Interesting. How does that? How often does that work? <laughs> Do you like? It? Um, I mean, I think both can be successful, right? It just okay. it it really like it does require work it does require time it does require effort i think the benefit to having the school is that then it can be consistent between home yeah. and school and parents and teachers can talk yeah um be on the same page use the same
2: strategies and hopefully the parent has the right comprehension of the situation right they're they're doing it on your own and not being a professional at it as opposed to involving a professional at it Mm -hmm. to get a professional, you kind of have to get a label and you end up maybe with paperwork. How much, where am I going? How much opportunity is there to involve the school without getting the label?
0: Well, without the paperwork, without the label, um, then we're really at the mercy of the school and their kind of willingness to help out. Mm-hmm. But they aren't actually tied legally to doing anything. So mm-hmm. that's where it can be tricky. So sometimes if, um, Jenny, like you said at the start, if it's a small school, sometimes they may just have more time to provide that help. Um, mm-hmm. So it can, yeah, it just depends on a few different things that are that just are really depends. outside of anybody's control.
2: So we're really kind of talking about a formal versus informal process in a way exactly let's let's, let's just handle this informally it's not that bad okay
0: yeah exactly exactly
1: what are some of the reasons Hmm. that parents have for wanting to do things informally so not wanting to pursue either not pursuing official diagnoses or not sharing official diagnoses Mm -hmm. with the school system? What do you hear? What are some of the top reasons that parents go that route?
0: Well, the main one is labels. So not wanting labels, not wanting, um, you know, the outcome of the assessment to impact how their child is seen from their teachers or um, to then have the school make like judgments based on said low for their kid. Um, so that probably is the main one. Um, but the other one that I had come up recently is that when you do have a formal diagnosis, um, it can then impact potential future employment. Um, really, rarely now rarely um, it follows and, like, you, huh? um and really, the only. Time that that would come into play is um, like this one client that I've been working with recently, um, and he's like an older boy, 16, 17, about to wrap up high school and sort of go into life. And he's looking at maybe applying it like military or police. Um, and so those kinds of professions um, where having some, it really depends. Sometimes, if you have a diagnosis, that's okay. But if you have a diagnosis, but we're taking medications or had strategies in place, um, then you maybe would not be able to apply for these positions.
2: I have okay, so, you could disclose that. Okay.
0: Hmm. Hmm. But usually, it is. It does come down to to the labels. Interesting.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I've never really heard a good description of how that worked before. I get that. mm Hmm. Yeah, that's going to that's gonna be a tough choice as a parent, you know. Yeah. To not, I don't want to label my kid, but you may not be, now you're picking and choosing, now you're playing doctor, mm. you know, am I, get, am I getting my kid the best care or mm-hmm. not? That's one of those things that keeps you up at night.
0: Mm, for sure. And I think something that I come back to time and time again when working with clients is whether or not there's a diagnosis, oftentimes the way forward is the same. So, for example, if we're looking at something like dyslexia, right, formally called specific learning uh, disorder in reading, um, the way forward is the same, and that's, you know, looking at the strategies and implementing those in the practice, and you do that through like a learning specialist, probably, um, or a tutor. Some parents try to do it on their own, Um, but whether or not there's a diagnosis, that's Probably how you would go forward. So, depending on how much you want the school involved, right? Um, but those are things that you can do on your own for sure. Um,
2: if so you... that makes it make sense to not to avoid the diagnosis, if the if the path forward's the same, why burden anybody with a diagnosis? Let's let's just do it informally, okay?
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So both
2: choices are good and healthy in the right circumstance.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, the advantage I think to doing the full psychoeducational assessment is that that does include a cognitive assessment. So then coming out the other side, you do really specifically know and have a really in-depth understanding of how your child's brain works, or if you go through it as an adult, which a lot of adults do how your own brain works. And then, you know, like really specifics about like, yes, this person's a visual learner, this person's Um, you know, more of a verbal learner, and how to approach that. So that would be one of the, like, main positives of going through the assessment is then it kind of becomes easier to target those teaching and learning strategies because you know, like, okay, for this person, the visual is going to really be the most helpful. That's what naturally makes the most sense to the brain. So then you go hard with that.
1: Yeah. I'm also, I think that even though the path forward is the same regardless because we're, we're basically looking at a child and just saying, these are their needs since this is how their needs are going to get met. I think the only struggle in that for me would be that is the lack of consistency then at school. So are they going to school, not absorbing any or as much information uh, or feeling lost or feeling Dumb, like you know, labeling yeah. themselves those things because they're not keeping yeah. up and they're watching other kids in the classroom do things that they're not doing. Yeah. And and then they go home and they have a private tutor who reteaches them all of those things that they just mm-hmm. sat through in class. And yeah, I don't know. I'm just talking this out loud with you. I'm kind of thinking through it out loud, and it feels like it feels like almost like double the work for the child if they're Mm -hmm. not getting those integrated services that they need to learn the way they need to learn at school uh, or getting to take breaks during tests for things like ADHD specifically or having someone help them read the questions on the test for someone with Mm -hmm. dyslexia or, Mm -hmm. you know, these, these small adjustments that we can make for Kids, But then I can also see the other side of like if a a kid in the classroom is having the teacher or an assistant teacher have to sit with them and help them read through the questions, then the other kids, you know, are they going to get made fun of at recess? Are they, you know, Mm, um, are the labels going to turn into something that they get bullied for? Yeah, I don't know. uh,
2: What causes the least, uh, like any decision, it's what causes the least harm? You know, at the mercy of circumstances. I very much get the the consistency thing mm-hmm. at home at at home and at school. How do you make so? That's kind of the goal. The baseline goal is to have consistency between home and school. How yeah. how do you achieve that?
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And like like Jenny just said, right? We want to cut down on time. Like when you're spending like six or seven hours of your day already at school and then you have to go home and do more school. Like how disheartening is that? Especially when you have somebody who's struggling and they have to spend so much more time and energy just trying to make it through the day than their peers and then we're asking them to go home and do probably more of stuff that they already don't like. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. it's yeah. supposed to be your fun yeah. time. Now go do more of this stuff that you hate. Yeah. Um, so I think, like, obviously, I support psychoeducational assessments. That's what I do. And getting everybody, like, it takes a village, right? So getting all of our village on the same page, putting everything in place, um, like you guys just said, helps cut down on that time and helps make the time there more meaningful.
1: Yeah, that's yeah, because as someone so I went through my whole childhood never being diagnosed um, because it wasn't until fairly recently that that there were were types of ADHD assigned. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so when I was a kid. Everything was being te- like everything that was being tested for was hyperactivity, so and it was yeah. usually boys, yeah. and so boys who were hyperactive got their ADHD diagnosis, and very rarely did girls ever get theirs because ours was in- inattentive. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I remember getting, and I remember having anxiety, and I remember struggling in school, um, and I remember, you know, I was a B and C student uh, until high school. And then I was an A plus student because strictly out of the fear of, of God that was put into me of not getting into the private university I wanted to go to. Mm. Um, Literally. but, but I remember after those four years of like scraping by mm. to get my A's yes. and then I went to college and I, what I did in high school was I, I studied that like, I just like for three or four hours the night before I would just memorize, 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 memorize. And then I wouldn't do or think about anything else until I got up, went to school. I wouldn't talk to anybody until I got to that test and info dumped. And then it was over. Mm -hmm. And that was like, that was the constant wheel that I was on. And Mm -hmm. Um, and then I went to college and had no study skills, had no time management skills, had no just basic life skills to manage any kind of course load, um, mm-hmm. let alone a college level reading load, studying load, right. Cause it's way more than high school. And mm-hmm. so the crash, crash studying before a test didn't work anymore. So my grades were mm-hmm. awful and yeah. I went I think I was 19 and just like everybody just like everybody else in college I wanted Adderall. I wanted to be able to study, I wanted to be able to focus and when it came time for finals I needed help and I didn't know what else to do and I I knew people were taking Adderall so I went to I don't even remember, I don't remember if it was the campus doctor or whoever. And I, you know, answered the questions the way that I was supposed to, um, Mm. and was diagnosed with ADHD and given Adderall. And I was like, cool, great. I did it. Um, not thinking, not taking the ADHD diagnosis seriously and not realizing that most of the questions I was actually just being honest about. I wasn't even lying. Like it's just actually the right answers also (laughs) happened to be true. Um, yeah. But then I don't know, throughout my twenties, I kind of had inklings of like, maybe I really do have ADHD. Um, but it really wasn't (laughs) until a couple years ago. Um, my husband brought an article to my attention about ADHD and I think his brother had sent it to him or something. So it was just very random and I read it and I was like, like, oh, oh, that I do all of those things. That's
2: me. That's <laughs> me. I suck That's at me. all of yeah. those
1: things, like more than my peers, more than other people that I are mm-hmm. in my life. And mm-hmm. I've just kept it inside. And I've always had like, anxi- I, I would get anxiety at school and like, I would ha- like, I, you know, there's all these different ways that it manifests, um, and all these mm-hmm. diagnoses that I had received throughout my life with anxiety and depression and, um, all of those things, I, I just started like reading and processing that a couple years ago and finally went to a psychiatrist who was like, yeah, you have, you have ADHD. <laughs> and so Thanks, I just, <laughs> so this law, lo- this whole story, uh, I'm tell I'm telling it because I personally feel like there could have been a lot less suffering and I could have felt understood throughout my childhood and been mm-hmm. more capable of saying, "Hey, I'm struggling with this." Um, to either my parents or my teachers or, you know, like the, I needed help with time. Like I did not know how to make myself study without an impending immediate deadline. And Mm -hmm. because it, and it, and I even talk now, um, to my husband and now that I'm, you know, an entrepreneur and I'm trying to run a business and there's no one holding me accountable for that. Like it is being an entrepreneur is already hard for anyone. Mm-hmm. With ADHD, I am, I am, it's, it's literally like trying to flex a muscle you don't have to make yourself do something that is mentally painful. It's not, it's not just like, I don't feel like doing it. Like I, I want to do it. I want to do it. It's stuff I want to do. It's stuff I care about and I want to do it. Mm-hmm. And it is still so difficult without the exact right circumstances and environment and visual Mm -hmm. cues and all of the things. Um, And for women also our cycles can affect different parts of the month. And like, it is a constant battle Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and a constant trial and error of coping mechanisms to overcome and trick my brain into doing mm-hmm. stuff that mo- that people without ADHD can just sit down and, and kind of white knuckle them, themselves through it like little yep. menial tasks, like administrative stuff, you know, and there's, so anyway, I just naturally had to figure these things out in adulthood mm-hmm. long wow. after school was over. And I, wish that we had had more information on how ADHD manifests in girls and someone had seen it and had seen anxiety and in my little eight-year-old body, instead of an eight-year-old who just doesn't feel like going to school and gone, something's going on at school.
0: Mm -hmm. What is it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: And like digging deeper and figuring that out and, and getting me a diagnosis so that there were things in place to help me get my education, you know, and take brain breaks. And yes.
2: Despite the label, the lay, you know, the ADHD labels pretty common now, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. maybe the stigma or whatever, all the things attached to that uh, balanced against the, the struggle into your thirties to identify what's going on. Mm-hmm. and then the struggle you know what you're what you're describing about the day-to-day I call friction you know it just takes it's swimming through molasses it's just yeah. harder it takes more work yeah to do things that other people do sometimes easier and you know having a having a leg up on that that's that would be a tremendous benefit for for the child in some circumstances mm-hmm. yeah
0: mm-hmm. for sure for sure and like Jenny was saying right as as a woman, as a young girl, it also adds like this whole new dimension, right? Like oftentimes I hear from parents, well, she can't have ADHD because like she can focus and study for long periods of time, or she does get really good grades and she's not in class stirring up trouble. So then the teacher is like, no, she'll just be fine. Right. She's just working through this and then she'll be fine. Like Mm -hmm. I hear it. All the time, and parents hear it all the time, um, but mm. but and and you know, like you said, Jenny, the inattentive type, right, is really so internal
1: mm-hmm.
0: that nobody knows other than the person who's living it, right? Yeah, um, and that's where I think it can become really tricky for for parents and and for teachers especially, right? Because then when you are faced with that inattentive piece and nobody's seeing it, but mm-hmm. the person's experiencing it on the inside but then you have the people who are like really outwardly hyperactive yeah. that take a lot of time and attention. Um, it becomes really tricky. Yeah.
2: So what's a good tip for a parent to make sure their kid is make some, make sure someone is digging down into that. If there's, you know, when you see somebody present, how do you ensure, how do you ensure as a parent, how do you ensure that, the diagnosis for your kid is is good and not just a function of busy school people or, you know, the teacher hasn't seen that before. Or, you know, cause mm-hmm. there's teachers who have been around forever. There's teachers who have been there. This is your first year. And so as a parent, how do you shepherd your kid through the system like that for that purpose?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I think as a parent, nobody knows your kid better than you. Mm-hmm. And as a parent, um, I think you just have kind of that internal sense of like something's up, something's, yeah,
2: something's going on. Yeah. yeah,
0: something's going on. And then, and then sometimes people like discount what you're saying, right?
2: Sure. Like, oh, like, like I said
0: before, she'll be fine. She'll be fine. Yeah. They're just working it out. Whatever. But if deep down you think no, something needs to be checked out um you know not letting other people kind of discount your feelings and then seeking out a professional or looking at resources online and doing a little bit of your own research if need be um and then finding a professional who will take you seriously because there are of course professionals who who also um, don't believe in things like ADHD or who brush parents off and things like that. So if if as a parent, you really think that it's warranted to look into something and that's what you feel on the inside, nobody knows your kid better than you. So take those kind of heart promptings seriously and and seek out professionals.
2: Yeah, that's definitely a listen to your gut and learn to advocate for yourself. Yeah. You know, some things... Nobody else is going to notice the subtle stuff the way a parent does, Mm -hmm. and so make somebody explain it to you to the point where you're happy. You're happy that the right thing is being done. Don't Mm -hmm. take don't take a pat on the head as a as a final word. Keep pushing.
1: Yeah, Yeah. what are some of the ways? Because so for me it was, um, and I remember in third grade I would I would have a stomach ache every day and mm. I would either Me tell too. my parents or tell my teacher and it basically like I did it every single day so it became like the boy who cried wolf and I was just mm-hmm. brushed off right yeah um, or, or fever, it was go
2: to work, go to yeah
1: no fever go to school um mm. or or it was uh Well, I don't even remember much past that. But so my question is to you, especially for, you know, we have so much more information now, right? About the different types of ADHD. What are some of the ways that an inattentive type shows up? So what are some of the manifestations that show up instead of clear ADHD symptoms? Um, Mm -hmm. How does that show up in kids who can't quite tell you what's going on?
0: mm-hmm well it can be so I mean like we've been saying it's one of those things that's a little bit trickier right um because it is so internal but some of the things are of course like the daydreaming right tuning in and out of conversation so this is where parents are like were you even listening to me right now like what did I just say right mm-hmm. um or things where you give your child like a a to-do list, like, Hey, go brush your teeth, put your socks on, like get your homework and let's go. And then you find them like in their room playing with Lego. And you're like, did you not hear what I said? And they're like, Oh, like I knew I came up here for a reason. I,
2: yeah, right. I did. I shiny brush shiny my new teeth. thing across my path. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, so at
1: what what age would you expect them to be able to do a multi-step list of actions like that? Because to a certain age, to a certain point, if you send a five-year-old to their room with a six-step list of things to get, like they're yeah. gonna go play with their Legos.
2: <laughs> it's pretty pretty dependable you're brush- not getting to six. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, for like early elementary, let's say like like typical morning routine or bedtime routine stuff, right? Like mm-hmm. brush your teeth, get dressed. Yeah. Then come back and give new instructions, right? Okay, so yeah. now that we've done those things, these are the things I need you to do now, right? Um, but for most people, trying the more we try to keep in our minds, the more we can kind of forget stuff, right? So yeah. of course, with little kids um, or younger kids is where sometimes we can bring in support. So this is something like um, having a whiteboard, let's say, of like, Tasks to do, um, and then they can like check off when they've done it, or they have something concrete to kind of check back to. And if you have a kid that's not a reader, or not a strong reader, or not yet a reader, then you can instead of writing words like brush your teeth, you can put like a little picture of a toothbrush, right, and then a mm. picture of clothing or something like that um, to kind of just cue them along. Yeah,
2: I know something I descri- I discovered at work years ago was a. Uh, it was a book called Getting Things Done, I think.
1: Mm, and the method is,
2: is just, yeah, don't don't try to keep, because that's what I would do. I used to be real interrupt driven. I was, I was great at starting out the day with a plan and then there'd be 15 interruptions. And I was very proud of myself for being able to work my way back out of the unplanned stuff and mm-hmm. get back and still accomplish things. But mm-hmm. that's a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> like we're sure. talking about, you know. And so it's, you know, the getting things done thing is everything goes on a piece of paper. Yep. all the pieces of paper go on a tray and then you can go home and forget about it because when you come back into work or back home, yeah, just look at the top thing on the tray, you know, and mm-hmm. there you go. But you know, there's a little friction there to get things written down. Or, you know, I've, in my case, I keep a list of outstanding issues all the time. You know, it's just mm-hmm. like, okay, here's my list, make lists. And uh, if you don't see me write it down, it didn't happen. You know, you, <laughs> I, I need to, I carry a book, you know, or a book, you know, now it's one note. And yeah. it's like, if I don't make a note of it, if I don't put it in the calendar, just don't count on it. I, mm-hmm. I caution people about that. If it's important it have, but you get, you know, so there's coping mechanisms for mm-hmm. it. Uh, I found that in my forties, I think mm-hmm. you know, I was 40 before I figured that out. If someone had taught me that in third grade,
0: that would have been a good thing for sure. Yeah, for sure. And that's one of those life skills that I think we sometimes think people are just kind of born with is like how to manage a timetable or how, how Mm -hmm. to like use your Mm -hmm. day planner. Um, but it is something that that is a learned skill and that is a useful skill. And, and some people, I guess, you know, still like paper, pencil, um, and some people like the technology part, um, I like both. Um, cause I hate on my phone where I can only see like one day at a time, or if I look yep. at the calendar, I could see the dots, but I'm like, well, that doesn't mean anything. Um, so I like having like the, the Costco size, like wall calendar, mm-hmm. where yep. I'm like, oh yeah. Okay. So on Thursday, yep. this is what I need to do. Whereas if I look on my phone, I'm like, well, I don't know. I'm only looking at Monday. Like who cares about Thursday? Um, you yep. know, so using these types of things to like help your child learn how to organize themselves. Right. And, yeah. um, things like that. But yeah, but even, um, you know, like you're just saying, poprick, um, a lot of like <laughs> the top CEOs, they always like carry around notebooks and have talked about this openly, um, carrying around notebooks. Don't try to keep anything in your head, write everything down and then there it is. Right. Yep.
2: Yeah, Then if you're going if you pick up you go in the hospital for a week or something and you come back, it's all right there. It's all there. Mm-hmm. Day timers. I'm thinking actually thinking about going back to day timers. I'm I'm in IT and I hate to carry a day timer. I wanna be cool and electric <laughs> and electronic, but I really prefer the day timer. I can then I can fold out the month or the quarter or yeah. you know, you can make your own little charts. Yeah, uh, I, I can't wait for a phone that does that. I need something that changes <laughs> size to really be happy with
0: it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> um, so, you know, another tool that I like for parents is, um, you know, like a lot of parents like the sticker chart, right? That's something that teachers use hmm. that's used in schools, right? But as humans, as individuals, we do really well with, I mean, like you said at the beginning, Jenny, like, right, tight, short deadlines. Um, But then Mm -hmm. we also do well when we have um, treats right away or things right away. So Mm -hmm. a lot of times when we have, like, a sticker chart and then the kid is looking at it and is like, oh, no, I need, like, 25 stickers to get, like, whatever this dinosaur thing or whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. We need, like, we need things to keep us motivated that are a lot shorter Mm -hmm. than that. So what I like to do is you know, again, with like a big, like normal wall size calendar. And then I put like little post-its on the day. And then on the day I'm like, Oh, I've done this. So I get to rip it off. And then as I'm ripping off post-its, it's Mm. it's like immediately satisfying. And then like Hmm. a little treat, whatever that is. And a little treat might be like two Skittles. It might be like five minutes of Roblox time or whatever it is. Like as parents, you know what the best hook is for your child, but something to kind of keep them motivated while they work towards like the big goal. Yeah. And building healthy habits in the meantime.
2: Milestones in project planning Yeah. There's, there's, there's chunks. You break things up into chunks. Sure.
0: Yeah.
1: So I, so I struggle with something that I've, I've really that's like really at the forefront of my like struggle list right now, is that I will, you know, do brain dumps where I'm like, mm-hmm. I want to do that, I need to do this and that and this, and that, you know, and I just like scribble as fast as I can, yeah. And then that list is so long that I get overwhelmed by it and I don't ever look at it again, um, mm. and so it's actually like more taxing for me to. Because I don't, I don't forget things. It all lives in here, mm. for me. It it lives in my brain. It's just like the the little things that I need to do. Things like appointments and phone call. Like my calendar on my phone is color coordinated, and every second of the day is planned out. And mm-hmm. none of it ever happens when it's supposed to. But anyway, she's mm-hmm.
2: really good at calendars. She made when, me a calendar once.
1: Yeah. Well, when so when I I'm really bad at sticking to them though.
2: And because I
1: look at them and I get overwhelmed and I do the same thing with my lists. Like you will, if you were in my office, like there's, I've got like two wall calendars that are three by two feet and one is a year and one is a month. And I've got sticky Mm. notes all over my desk and I've got like six Mm. different notebooks all around the house, each with its own pen hooked on Mm -hmm. the front so that no matter where I'm at in the house, if I have a thought
2: and mm-hmm. I need to write it
1: down. I have a space to do that. But I've found that like mm-hmm. if, I, if I get up for my day and there's like the stuff that has to get done that day and then there's the stuff that I like want to get done that day. If I write mm-hmm. it all down, I, I get overwhelmed and I will scroll TikTok instead. Or, fi- uh, or I'll clean yeah. the freaking house. Like yeah. I will find some escape. way to escape it. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Like,
2: have you done the, uh, have you seen the seven habits of highly, I keep quoting books. Can we do that without a royalty or anything? Um, you've given me I all always, these uh,
1: books you're mentioning. I have all of them. Have, a,
2: have <laughs> I? Okay. That's probably why. Cause I find one. Uh, what year did I give it to you? The, uh, I think the it was quadrate, early 20s. The four quadrants. Helped me a lot with that. Mm. It's like, yeah. okay, here's the important and urgent stuff. Mm-hmm. Everything else is optional, and it helps me look at my list of things to do and go. Well, seventy only twenty five of those are things I really need to worry about. The other seventy five, nobody's going to die if I don't get those done till next year. So, yeah. well, but sitting you know, down helps, keep, helps me,
1: and writing out that graph and and categorizing everything, deciding which which box each thing goes into is yet another task on my list.
2: Yes. That... it's friction. It's overhead. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it's like,
1: yeah. And I got and I mean, so Caroline, I, really... I would love to hear your insight on that. If you have any, you're also, we're, you're not here to treat us, but.
2: <laughs> That's right. Hey, I've got a mole here. doctor.
1: <laughs> Yeah. yeah. But do you, ever, um, do you ever run into that with kids, like where it's like all these coping skills and some of them work for some people and some of them actually, it actually makes things harder?
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I think, you know, like you guys just said, pick the top two or three and then go with that. Right. Because definitely if you start like brain temping and then you end up with this huge list of stuff. Like, that would be overwhelming. That would be overwhelming for anybody, right? So pick, like, what do I absolutely need to do today? Awesome. And then move on.
2: Yeah. You have to manage your expectations, you know, just because you thought of it and wrote it down.
0: Mm-hmm. That, that doesn't mm-hmm. make
2: it an emergency.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
2: It's funny that we've run into this on other episodes where, where to pass a skill on to your kids, it's good for you to pick it up too you know the reason yes. i, I, I yeah. get into this so Modeling. much because you know we're we're getting hooked up in uh, hung up in in oh yeah oh yeah oh yeah about our past with adhd mm-hmm. and you know golly what if what if uh, our parents had known this what if i'd have known this 10 years sooner yep. when i was raising you what uh you know that uh uh that's something to keep in mind is a little per little personal development while you're developing your little one too is is good.
0: A hundred percent. And I think that's so key. And I often hear parents say like when it comes to like ADHD coaching or even anxiety and things like that, parents will say, you know, I noticed their stuff got better when my stuff got
2: better. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay.
0: So that's a
2: concept
1: that I coach all parents on is, no matter Mm -hmm. what what child you have, like your kids are going to copy you. They're going Mm -hmm. to do what you do. And Mm -hmm. so if you are dysregulated or yell, you know, you handle conflict by yelling. Um, if you, you know, are disorganized or you're constantly forgetting things. And -hmm. I mean, some of these things are just like human nature, right. And it's going to happen. Um, but any habits as a parent, like do you get up in the morning and I don't know, like for me, I lay in bed for a while because to wake up, uh, but I want my kids to be able to like get up and start their day, um, without laying in bed for an hour and a half. (laughs) And so like getting up, getting going, you know, washing my face and, you know, journaling, meditating, doing some yoga, you know, I, I often think about like the morning routine I want to have with my children to set a Mm -hmm. good example. Mm Um, and versus the one that I have on a lot of days now and, you know, different things. But anyway, what I tell, what I tell parents is that the most powerful tool at your disposal is your own habits. What does your life look like? Like instead of raising kids and being like, well, I want to give my kids everything I didn't have. Well, then you need to be the parent you didn't have. Mm -hmm. Like you need to be the parent you needed. Um, And whether that requires you to read some books Mm -hmm. or to have a therapist or to um, hire a coach or take some classes, like I've Mm -hmm. actually heard a lot of parents who took their kid in to get diagnosed and ended up with their own diagnosis because they learned and they were like, oh.
0: Maybe I need to get get tested. (laughs) All the time. I hear it. Like, parents will come in, and then as we're going through like assessment results, and I talk about like steps to take going forward and all of that, that is the point where a lot of times parents will be like, I need to come in for an assessment with you because you could have written this report about me. Yeah. Like, all the time. And that's something that that I've heard people say um, recently is like heal from your own stuff so that your kids yeah. don't need to heal from you.
2: Yeah. Which yes. is like,
0: Oh, as a parent, yeah. like yes. tingles,
2: yes. generational trauma. <laughs> and yeah, sure.
0: Hmm. Hmm. So yeah, I mean, every, I mean, and we all like could do our own work. Right. But definitely as a parent having that awareness of like, Oh yeah. Like, you know, if I'm, setting up these bad habits what is that teaching these little people going forward right yeah,
2: yeah especially unconsciously you know kids 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 do what we do not what we say you know mm, if you yeah know, if exactly you, if you know better you need exactly. to you need to work on your own habits yeah it's very cool
0: so
1: so Caroline when you and I were talking um on the phone you know preparing for the podcast mm-hmm. we talked about some of the of the values or beliefs um or even researched backed methods um that we mm-hmm. share mm-hmm.
2: and
1: um a lot of a lot of it overlaps with relational parenting which is what mm-hmm. I'm trying to teach parents mm-hmm. and when it comes to a diagnosis, we've been focused a lot on ADHD, but we know there's a lot of other diagnoses out there Mm that, um, that are very common, um, Mm -hmm. autism, dyslexia, you know, learning delays, developmental delays of all kinds. And Mm -hmm. I think that it's just, it's important to spend a few minutes talking about how, even though these are a diagnosis for me, I, the more people I know, the more people I know with these diagnoses and on some Mm -hmm. spectrum Mm -hmm. of the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And for me, it just, Mm -hmm. it just reaffirms that humanity, there is no typical or normal. There's no such thing as normal. Everyone is on some kind of spectrum And everyone Mm -hmm. is, has different ways of learning things and different ways of doing things and different ways Mm -hmm. that the neurons in their brains connect and, uh, and you know, how there's more than one right way to do things. And, but our school system to bring this back to education, specifically our school system is set up in a way that serves like one type of person. Mm-hmm. And then everybody else is that's outside of that type of learner is requires an i e p in order mm-hmm. to get their needs met
0: mm-hmm.
1: yep. um, Bell curve. and so this is something on our our last episode we were talking to Sarah about is that the education system was created to produce factory workers the current education mm-hmm. system yeah um was was created to to create factory workers in a time when there there was a very high need for factory workers, but that is not the world we live in anymore. And so we are now, you know, a lot of educators um, or people who work with the education system, but outside of it are trying to help schools figure out how to um, transition the their care model to a more child-centered, individualized way mm-hmm. of serving students. And I'm just mm-hmm. curious, like, what is, what is your take on that? What is your insight on that? Like, what do you see happening in education, um, as it evolves over the next 10 or 20 years? Um, mm-hmm. because we already have a teacher shortage.
0: Mm-hmm. Like, so like,
1: what does Perfect. this look like? You know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I don't think that anybody really has a clear answer to that or really like a clear (laughs) path forward. Right. But I think that, um, you know, in educational programs and teacher development and things like that, you learn a lot about multiple intelligences. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that kind of shapes teaching practices now. And, and I think it's not just about teaching practices at this point, but the important part is, um, assessment practices right um mm-hmm. of of getting that knowledge out of the student and knowing that they have the information that they need that doesn't have to be a multiple choice test though right for example yeah um or a long answer test. as long as you know that they know the curricular outcomes that really is the key um and like yeah. you were just saying the educational system was built with certain goal in mind. Uh, but when I'm working with students and parents and thinking about like all these different kinds of learners, I think a really good representation of it. And, you know, you may have seen this online is like, if we think about the test as climbing a tree, right? Mm -hmm. If you're a monkey climbing the tree is not going to be an issue. And that is what the educational system is. Right. But the fact is we're not all monkeys, right? We have like mm-hmm. sharks and giraffes, wolves and what have you, but the test is still climbing a tree. Well, none yeah. of those other animals climb the tree, so they'll fail. And then they'll go yeah. forward thinking they're failures, but that's not it at all. They have different yeah. skill sets, different talents, different ways of showing their knowledge. Mm-hmm. So that's how that's I a great analogy. It. Yeah, right. It just kind of may make sense. But I, I do think that is where differentiated. <laughs> Um, education comes in to help meet the needs of our of our students and we do have some programs right like Montessori Waldorf all those programs mm-hmm. um, but again that's really not mainstream those are usually very very yeah. small very private schools
1: and very um, expensive
0: and very expensive. <laughs> yep. exactly exactly yeah Have you seen? Yeah, that's what
2: it comes down to. Sometimes is, yeah. You know, there's a lot of things. Teaching emotional intelligence in kids and and helping with substance abuse, and you know, there's ways to we know ways to deal with better and more effective ways to deal with things, but they're expensive to implement. You know, in Mm -hmm. the public schools, and so parents are kind of left left to their own.
1: Yeah, when there's a segment of public Mm -hmm. schools that where there's low socioeconomic students and their only resource is the public school's resources. And so they don't have the option to hire a tutor. They don't have the option to get their kid
2: resources
1: outside of what the school can provide. And so, um, if you're in a low socioeconomic community, your school is not getting the tax dollars that another school might be getting, and so they might not have the programs and the staff and, you know, all of those things available as well. And so then we're, you know, we're getting into inequality and, you know, we're getting into a lot of
2: social pieces there. And, yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: Um, and Which then is why it's
2: important for parents to be good advocates and yeah. be as knowledgeable as possible and understand their own stuff. And sure. Yeah.
1: Well that's also why we need the school systems to like the govern the gov there's a level of government responsibility mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. stepping into the school, you know, the way the school systems are set up. Um and I don't know enough about how taxes get allocated and and I'm sure that there's the state tax you know, property tax goes towards your school systems and that's regulated. Is that regulated by the state? Is that regulated by the federal government? Like, you know, and, and who decides which schools get how much? And I know it's like by area and all of that, but like how do we even that playing field because you have kids growing up in a school system where it's a 5,000 person school and they have a freaking Olympic swimming pool
2: Mm. and,
1: you know, a $10 trillion computer lab. And then you have kids growing up in a school out in rural Kansas and there's 20 kids in the graduating class and they mm-hmm. have like reading, writing, and arithmetic and that's it, you know? Yeah. And so there's...
2: It's kind know. of built into the system. I'll, I'll have to... Yeah. I'll have to pass along to you the education I got on school finance um, on the school board someday, at least how, and it varies by state, but that's mm-hmm. exactly the case. Is you know, some people are struggling to hire; uh, they don't have as much money for teachers and administrators, so mm-hmm. they they don't get the cream of the crop and yeah. and then uh, resources, and so that's you know, it's uh, if you're in that situation, it's even more important that that you uh, do everything you can to be the best parent you can, especially with dealing with a big system like the schools, you know, which Mm -hmm. has a lot of uh, inertia with it. When you walk into it, you know, they kind of have the ability to say, here's the thing. I liked what you said, Caroline, about uh, um, assessment, not standards, assessment Mm -hmm. practices, Mm -hmm. so back to making sure did they – you know, I have a feeling about my kid and I am not getting an answer that seems helpful and mm-hmm. and uh, helps with consistency between school and home. And, you know, keep digging, keep pushing because uh, yeah. it can be a struggle, a real struggle.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Like, I mean, everything that, you know, that we just mentioned um, are things that really uh, as parents, as Citizens are are kind of out of our control. Those are education is very top down, right? Comes from the government. So so all you have as a parent is sometimes relying on on yourself and your own your own resources, right? Whatever that means, um, educating yourself um, and then being the best advocate for your kid that you can
1: be. And when families come to you do you, are you ever then in touch with their schools, like their administration, um, helping, like, do you then come to the school for an IEP meeting and you're, you're there and you're part of that, or do you pass it off to like the school psychologist who takes that information and helps create the IEP? Like how directly in contact with schools are you? Um, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. So because I work privately,
1: mm-hmm.
0: basically I'm not involved with the school, at all, or very little. Okay. Um, and, and one of the things that people who come to me, families that come to me, um, sometimes because they don't want to share things with the school, like for all everything we've been talking about from the beginning. So sometimes yeah. they say like, don't contact the teacher at all. Um, yeah. I want to keep this between us. And then when I finish the report, huh. I give it to parents, and then it becomes up to them to share it with the school. Hmm. Most do it right away. Some want to kind of sit on it, think about it, reflect, see what they can do on their own. Uh, On occasion, I will have parents who say, hey, like, I got this great information from you. I can't relay it to them. Like, this is not the language I know. It isn't the world I know. And so sometimes I will go in if the school is willing to meet with me um, and have a meeting, discuss findings, you know, discuss with the school what's possible going forward. But as somebody who works privately, that doesn't happen a whole lot so you
1: have you ever have you ever had to either really push a team at a in a school system to, uh, to either take the family seriously or take the child's needs seriously or have you ever had to really like had a really difficult case with a family where you had to really like help them? fight back, um, or advocate, um, like how often does that, ha- Have you seen that happen where a school pushes back or doesn't want to implement an IEP?
0: Mm-hmm. So for the most part, um, educators are educators because they love kids and they want to see them be successful. And for the most part, the mm-hmm. feedback I get from teachers is tell me what to do. I want yeah. to help, but I don't know what to do. I will do just about anything sure. to help this yeah. kid and this family. Just want to put that out there. That is usually the feedback that I get, right? Um, Very rarely, but a couple of times I have heard from schools, kind of like we talked about at the beginning, right? I don't know that this kid's really struggling that much. Um, You know, those types of comments, only a couple of times in the time that I've been doing this has that come up. Um, And I think that that may be due to those, like budgetary constraints or, um, mm. reflection on their student population and things like that. Again, very, very rarely, like maybe twice has that ever happened. Um, and it's unfortunate. Um, and then I mean, my feedback to parents at that point is what are you getting out of the school? What you want? And is the school really the best fit for your family? Very rarely yeah. does that conversation happen. But sometimes as parents, you have to wonder, like, um, and I've, you know, asked myself the same question for my kid, right? Is this school meeting our needs as a family? Is this school meeting my kids' needs as a learner?
2: Yeah. Well, so that's not, a good point. I mean, you, ultimately, you're in control. As the yeah. so there's there's generally something you can do next.
1: Yeah. And there's, so outside the public school system, the systems I'm aware of are obviously private schools, obviously cost money, hard to get into, et cetera. Um, Charter schools, similar situations sometimes. Sometimes they're free. Mm -hmm. Um, Homeschooling, homeschooling, um, some kind of homeschool cohort where there's like a neighborhood, you know, several families in a neighborhood will come together. Um, and they'll either trade off who, you know, which house Mm -hmm. the kids go to during the week and, and the parents will take turns or they will hire someone, um, a teacher or an educator or, um, a childcare professional, uh, to teach the material and help, you know, help the kids with that. Um, and then there's online schooling, um, and I didn't even know that was a thing and that there's free. So it's free online public school. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and I've seen kids who thrive with that. Really? Um, and absolutely they are like, they can sit down at their computer for two or three hours a day get their homework assignment, get it done. And then they've got their, the rest of their day to just be a kid and like, Mm -hmm. you know, live their life and help cook and, you know, and pick up more life skills that will serve, you know, serve them down the road versus just like sitting in a classroom, you know, for six or seven hours and then coming home and doing homework or whatever. Um, but there's different like I don't know that I would have benefited from online schooling. I think that I would have had to have someone sit there with me the whole time.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah. Especially um, young.
2: Especially young. Later yeah. on college. I can imagine doing college that way. I yeah. don't know about before college. Yeah, well, it kicked in.
0: I think like if the pandemic has taught us anything, right? Um if you're an online learner, then it works for you. And if you're not, mm-hmm. then it really does not. It really doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah
2: that's so, it. video school during the pandemic wasn't horrible for everybody, is what I'm taking away from this. There Absolutely. Were yeah. Correct. Who were just fine with that.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because, you know, like that's Danny was just know. saying, for some kids, it is great. Like, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to do what I need to do crank it out and then I can move on.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then there's other kids who don't learn that way and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. need yeah. different, you know, tactile learning, social learning, etc., yeah. immersive learning. And then there's also, I think the pandemic more than anything, I mean, it affected the kids for sure, but I think it also affected, uh, households where both parents worked outside the home and, or if if a parent worked from home, but then they all of a sudden had their kid home all day instead of going to school. Like there was a mass wave of women who left the workforce during the pandemic because they had to, someone had to stay home with the kids while the kids were in school online.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. So there's also that public school and school can also be like, it's, it's, it's childcare right if you're oh, yeah. both parents are working full time or yeah. part time or whatever, like- t- school is also so then it, it becomes like okay, well, this school isn't working, you know, mhm mm-hmm. do the parents have to shift their life set up in order to accommodate a child's needs
2: Mhm, yeah, that's a great perspective i i would I don't know that that thought would have ever occurred to me you know very that's I was very in the box, it's like we're out in mm-hmm. the country and and uh, where else would we have? How else would we have done school if we really didn't like the school district we were in? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that's that's nice. Now that that yeah, it's possible to be more innovative now, mm-hmm. maybe mm-hmm. than than we were then. That's cool.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, so Caroline, I want to make sure that we talk a little bit. So you, you help families, um, navigate the educational system, but you also, you do more than that. And so, um, tell us a little (laughs) bit more about what you do and the populations that you serve now with, um, with your,
0: with your business. Mm -hmm, For sure. Yeah. So definitely assessments still make up a big part of what I do, but parent coaching, Um, And specifically like women coaching, ADHD coaching, Um, sometimes they have their own diagnosis. Sometimes they're coming in to support a child with a diagnosis or suspected diagnosis. Um, And so kind of coaching around that uh, because people with ADHD are often functioning in this like elevated state a lot. I do a lot of Mm -hmm. clinical hypnotherapy with clients to work Mm -hmm. on calming the nervous system, right? Working with the vagus nerve. Um, And all of those things naturally um, helping um, ADHD, right? Not everybody wants medication, though if you do, that's perfectly great too. Um, So that is a big part of what I do. And then also I'm a a part of the um, Mm. trans-affirming community. And so I do work with several uh, members of the LGBTQ um, community as well. Awesome. Do you, so with
1: hypnotherapy and vagus nerve, are you, are you doing hypnotherapy sessions with people, um, as a form of healing or walking them through things? Like what does that look like for ADHD
0: Mm -hmm. treatment? Yeah. So, so we can be either of those, right. Um, some of it is just like, um, positive affirmations of, um, kind of reprogramming kind of that unconscious mind um, because a lot of people like women, especially come in, right. I'm not smart. I'm not good at that. Mm -hmm. I can't do that. Um, Mm -hmm. None of that is true. Um, So reshaping that. um, And then some of it just is uh, uh, processing that anxiety, maybe a little bit of depression uh, and those types of things.
2: Yeah, I want to find out more about that. That's I've heard. Uh, I've heard of people fainting. I've heard. I've run into instances of the, va- the the vagus nerve giving you trouble before. I hadn't thought about it in a in a psychological
0: mm. sense too,
2: as as doing a meditation or a calm, you know, mm-hmm. man, deliberately calming, intentionally calming mm-hmm. yep. the vagus nerve issue. That's interesting.
0: Yeah, yeah, and part of the part of the reason I think the clinical hypnotherapies is is so effective is kind of like we said at the beginning is having that accountability person, right? We all know that we need to kind of take that time to unwind and all of that, but most of us don't, like even mm-hmm. myself, right? And I know better. So when you it's have, easy like... to do. <laughs> so if I like that person's accountability person, and they know they have to show up with me for this session. Then we kind of do that together, and really, how I like to think of it is, you're not actually doing anything. You just really need to show up for yourself, and then I do the work. Yeah, as the clinical hypnotherapist. So there it can't go. possibly Good get friend. any easier than that.
1: That's true. Very <laughs>
0: <laughs> cool. Yeah,
1: awesome. As well. So I saw a note
2: here before. <laughs> Go ahead, sweetie. It was the same thing. I've seen this. I have this this bullet it's point fine. attachment parenting that's just bugging the heck out of me.
1: Oh, wow. so we I put that bullet point on there because you because we had touched on just shared values. Um, so you are mm. a parent, and so yeah. we talked about the importance of um, you know, and there's a, there's I think I th- there's a, a negative connotation to to a traditional definition of attachment parenting, meaning that your child has to be literally attached to you at all times or something. Um, But attachment parenting and relational parenting have a lot in common in the, in the responsive meeting the emotional and mental needs of children. And that heavily overlaps Mm -hmm. with educational needs, right? How we learn, because if we don't have, a powerful parental or primary caregiver, healthy attachment or relationship with, um, with our parents, then stepping out into the social and academic world can be even more taxing, even more difficult for children yeah. who, um, who don't have healthy relational skills, um, or don't who have a secure attachment figure because then they're not only are they feel like they're on their own to handle life in the home, um, but they then step out into the world and have no sense of stability under them to approach, you know, difficult things. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's that's why I threw that bullet point on there. But I would love to hear, Caroline, your perspective um, in your personal life, being a parent with mm-hmm. with these concepts.
0: Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that really has impacted me the most as a parent. Um, And like like we talked about before the podcast, um, you know, attachment parenting has gotten kind of this weird reputation. Um, Like Mm -hmm. celebrities have said and done different things that have made it seem like kind of weird, right? Like attachment parenting doesn't mean you're breastfeeding until your kid is seven or whatever. Right. <laughs> right. Um, really? Not that
2: there's anything wrong with that.
0: <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with that if that is how you choose to parent. Um, but so where did we land? Are we allowed to say, like, names and authors and stuff? Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. So yeah. so um, shaping my view of attachment parenting is a Canadian psychologist out of British Columbia. His name is Dr. Gordon Neufeld, who wrote Holding On To Your Kids. Just one of the um, most, I think, well-known books on attachment parenting. Mm-hmm. Um, and he talks about how, as a parent, you really need to be your kid's rock, uh, because, mm-hmm. like Jenny, you know how you said, when the kid goes out into the world, we don't know what's going to come with them. Peers sometimes are, you know, your best friend, and then the next day they're like spreading nasty rumors about you. So, yeah. if kids are left to attach to their friends, then their rock one day is what's like trying to take them out the next. So as a parent Mm -hmm. to be, um, you know, your kid's rock really is, is all that means to me. Mm -hmm. Um, and why I think that's, that's so important. Now you would hear people say, well, you know, 50 years ago, we just called that good parenting, um, which, which maybe is the case. Uh, but now, I disagree. I think 50 years ago, there were a lot of parents who wanted, who
1: the model was make your kids tough. Don't let your kids be weenies, like toughen your kids up. Yeah. And so that, so they can face a cruel world. And I say, and the research says (laughs) that was the language back then. As far as I know, I don't know. I wasn't alive. (laughs) Uh, But the, but the, but the research has shown time and time again That what actually helps kids face difficulty in the world is being shown how to navigate difficulty in a healthy, emotionally respectful way in the house and being responded to with love and kindness um, and and being taught then healthy skills to work through hard emotions, not just shut up, you're fine, move on with Mm. your life. Cause then yeah. it all just, it all still lives inside of you. It doesn't move. It doesn't, it doesn't move and process and get out of your body. It just continues to be pushed and shoved and packed in. And then yeah. you turn 25 and have a mental breakdown one day and you wonder why.
2: Yeah. It yeah. gets to be a habit. Yeah. yeah not, that's right. not
1: speaking about personal experience. That was a joke.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, that's right. We need to feel the feels, right. Yeah. So that we can address them and then move on.
1: Yeah, and being being a rock for someone means they can lean on you. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Right? Mhm. Yeah. Mhm.
2: Which takes time and energy and you know, as a parent you're there already anyway, so.
0: Mhm. Mhm. Hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, I could I have like seven different tangents happening in my head right now, but we are at <laughs> We are at an hour and 20 minutes. So, um, I'm, is there, are there any last thoughts, Caroline, that you have, that you want to share, um, before we wrap things up?
0: Um, if I had to share one message, it would be, nobody knows your kid better than you. Mm -hmm. Nobody's in a better position than you to be their advocate. Yeah. That's it. Yeah.
2: That's a good, I like having a list, like, like a short list of, uh, Little pithy sayings to keep in mind as a parent. Things are so busy, mm, you know. It's yeah. nice to have a couple of. I nice to have a short list of touchstones. It's like, it's mm-hmm. this urgent and important. Uh, no one, no one's better off. The, especially if you're sitting there across the table from a teacher that doesn't know how to deal with your kid, mm-hmm. and you're advocating for. You know, you're getting the head pat on. She'll be fine. Yeah, yeah it's like, yeah, I'm the expert here. Thank you very much.
0: That's right right exactly exactly
1: I like that I love it yeah awesome well thank you so much for being here with us today thanks for having me guys
0: yeah
2: terrific to meet you
1: you too all right everybody we will see you next week this episode truly solidified for me the absolute necessity to do your research know your child and seek support or guidance when making decisions about your child's education Standard public school is great for some, and depending on the resources available, could be the best and most diverse service option for your kid. But it may not be, and paying close attention to your child's silent cues that maybe school isn't working for them could save them a childhood full of confusion, misunderstanding, and even misguided punishment for behaviors outside their control. To know, advocate for, and respect your child's needs is the highest form of love and you don't have to do it alone. Like Carolyn said, find the right people who will be by your side and make life a little easier along the way. If someone came to mind while you were listening to this episode or you are wishing you had a friend to digest it with, I would be so honored if you shared this link from this episode with them. I myself have always benefited from community and sharing, and I truly believe that it takes a village to raise a child. Our society has become so independent from one another, and parenting these days is often a lonely journey. But it doesn't have to be that way. That's why I'm here. If you have been seeking a more intentional approach to parenting, but you aren't sure where to start, I would love to hear from you. You can find me and all of my offerings at www.jennyb.co and come follow me on all major social media platforms. It fills my heart to hear your stories, where you come from, and your big goals for raising the next generation. Don't forget, comment your parenting question on our YouTube channel, The Relational Parenting Podcast to get it answered on one of our future episodes. If you enjoyed this podcast, please hit the subscribe button so you never miss out. I am so grateful that you are here. And always remember, you are never alone. I'll see you next week. This show is intended for education and entertainment purposes only. We will discuss things like mental health, abuse, PTSD, and other potentially triggering subjects. Please listen at your own discretion, and this podcast is not intended for anyone under the age of 18.